Today, my guest is Professor Benjamin Gomez Caceres. I'll keep my introduction short to maximize our time with him. In the next 30 minutes or so, we'll talk about Ben as a person. Professor Gomez Caceres is a thought leader and an esteemed scholar, and finally, is a mentor to many PhD students and junior faculty. For the sake of time, I'll skip many of his accomplishments and give you a very quick snapshot. Professor Gomez Caceres is an authority on alliance strategy and management. He has published many journal articles and books on the topic. He received AIB's Decade Award and the Silver Prize in Economics, Axiom Books, Axiom Books Award for his book titled Remix Strategy. He was a finalist for Strategy Award at uh, Thinkers 50. He was also a finalist for the Thought Leader of the Year Award by the Alliance of Merging and Acquisition Advisors. He received the Better Richmond Award for Best Dissertation in International Management from the Academy of Management in 1987. Thank you, Ben, for joining us. Thank you, Olga. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. And uh, thank you for that nice introduction. You know, when you've been around this long, the introduction gets very, very, very long. That's all it is. But thank you for, for your kind words. Perfect. Uh, ben, what did you want to become when you were a child? Um, an astronomer. An astronomer. I, am, uh, I still am an amateur astronomer. Uh, I take uh, photographs of the sky. I have an observatory in my backyard. Uh, mm -hmm. And whenever there's something happening, an eclipse or a lunar this or that or comets, uh, I'm out there in the cold uh, looking at it. So that really was my, uh, my hobby uh, at the time. And it still is my hobby. Um, but after a while, I decided that for a career, I didn't want to spend the whole night in a cold telescope uh, taking pictures. Nowadays, that's not how it's done. Uh, but uh, so I decided to do something else. And uh, well, life takes you in different uh, channels after that. Wow. Um, and where did you grow up? I grew up in Curaçao. Uh, that is a small island. Uh, it's a, a, a Dutch colony, originally a Dutch colony. It's now a self-governing part of the Dutch kingdom. Uh, it is in the Caribbean, uh, very part south, close to Venezuela, uh, next to the uh, island of Aruba. Many people know that as a tourist destination uh, and the island of Bonaire. And, and Curaçao, because it was a uh, shipping center. Uh, it, it was since the, the 17th century uh, on until today. Uh, it has a very important uh, harbor and a strategic location. It was a little bit like the Singapore of, uh, of the Caribbean. Uh, and, and it was able to get a lot of trade and a lot of people from different backgrounds. So I, I grew up, uh, here's my, this is my high school class. Uh, and what you see there is uh, basically a diversity uh, which includes people from Holland, uh, from Curaçao, from Suriname, from Indonesia, uh, who came to settle uh, later on in the island. Uh, and, and so it's a very multicultural, very international, you might say, uh, island, even though it's a small island. Interesting. How did you choose academia? Uh, I think I fell into it. Um, <laughs> I think I, uh, I, I like studying. Uh, I, I enjoy learning and um, I had a drive to continue to learn things uh, and in fact when I went to do my, uh, my DBA, did my DBA at Harvard Business School, uh, I didn't know anything really about academia, <laughs> whether I wanted to stay there or wanted to become a consultant, I don't know, but uh, after completing a Harvard degree and uh, getting a job offer from Harvard Business School, well, I couldn't turn that down, so I had to uh, <laughs> see what it's like to be a professor, which I did for 10 years there. 
and then uh, afterwards I went to Brandeis, which is my original uh, alma mater. This was my undergraduate uh, school, Brandeis University, right outside of uh, uh, Boston. Uh, and it's a small school, a liberal arts school, and we did not have a business school at the time. Uh, we were just beginning to create a master's program in international economics and things like that. Uh, and so I actually came in from HBS uh, in order to set up uh, the business the business program. Mm -hmm. uh, and we now have a business undergraduate, MBA, uh, you know, uh, business students and a great faculty, including uh, business faculty, which we've hired since I came here, actually. Perfect. And uh, about alliances, strategic alliances, international business, how did you choose this area particularly? Yeah, well, you know, uh, that's another one that I fell into, I suppose. Um, I, I, I actually chose to go to Harvard to study with Lou Wells. Uh, Lou Wells, if you haven't interviewed him, uh, is a giant in the field. Uh, Lou Wells uh, is, uh, was the disciple, the closest disciple of uh, Ray Vernon. Uh, Ray Vernon, of course, was the uh, founding uh, leading light uh, of, uh, of international business, at least at the Harvard Business School, at the same time that Charles Kindleberger at MIT and uh, Stephen Heimer at MIT and others were uh, beginning to you know, look at the uh, multinational enterprises and their operations abroad. Uh, and he wrote a very important book, Sovereignty at Bay, uh, which if you read today, uh, my guess is you can still find still all these hypotheses that are testable and that are true. <laughs> uh, this is an amazing uh, work which uh, was based on uh, a database which he created at the time called the Harvard Multinational Enterprise Project, which uh, basically looked at the top 200 uh, U.S. multinationals and later they do it for European multinationals uh, and, 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 and got data on each of their subsidiaries. So, so they it's not data that you can find in governments, as you know that. Mm -hmm. uh, so they, you know, they collected the data on each of subsidiaries, including data on ownership uh, and other things like, uh, you know, size of the company and employees and country and, and data of entry and uh, partners, etc. So um, when I was there working with Lou Wells, um, this was the the time. So we're talking now 1980, 81, 82, 83, is, uh, 85 is when my uh, degree was. So during that time, um, the, the basically the transaction cost approach um, to international business had uh, be began to really take steam. It, I mean, it started uh, earlier with Buckley and Casson, of course, before that with uh, Oliver Williamson, but but with Buckley and Casson and, and then Jean-Francois Hennard was writing about this at the time. And so what I tried to do was with this great data that, uh, that, that uh, the Harvard project had created, even though it was relatively old data, my, the latest observation was 1975 and I was writing in 1985. So yeah. you could say it's old, but uh, it was very, very detailed. Um, and it still is uh, available actually for historical research. Uh, and so um, my thought was to uh, find a way to test some of the um, transaction cost um, predictions or, or uh, analyses uh, on the data, which basically meant at the time, the way it was set up, was the choice between joint venture and wholly owned. Basically, mm -hmm. that, that, that 
choice and then maybe different kinds of joint venture, but that choice was um, very easy to do in the data. Uh, and of course, we know now, um, we knew then too, but we know now it's very closely related to issues of uh, contracts and, and uh, incomplete contracts and, and transaction costs. Uh, and so that was part of my, my thesis. And the other part was something that came really out of Lou Wells's most directly his work, although that too goes back to Ray Vernon, which is the bargaining approach. And the bargaining approach was the idea that uh, host countries um, uh, will often put some barrier, as you know, for, for new entrants. Uh, and the barriers might include uh, ownership restrictions. Uh, there might be other ones too. And then that uh, even though there were barriers, that there was a bargaining process implicitly going on, that if, if you came with certain uh, let's say ownership uh, advantages that you could uh, bargain to get whole ownership or high ownership. Uh, and that if you came with something less uh, important as a competitive advantage that probably you wouldn't be able to. So that's the bargaining approach to determining joint venture versus wholly owned. And then there's a transaction cost approach to determining that. Uh, and really under Luau's guidance, I put this together in, the, in, in sort of an integrated framework. Uh, that's That actually turned out to be uh, the paper that got the uh, the decade award that you mentioned, uh, it, 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 it split uh, the choice between, uh, you know, bargaining and transaction cost and, and kind of did that, bo did, did both of them. And, you know, once you invest in studying it, and let me, let me just show you, I, I'm a believer in books. <laughs> I'm a believer in, in big books. Uh, so my thesis was not three, three papers. That, that's a perfectly fine approach. And today that's very common. At that time, it was not common. So at that time it was a book. This is just about 600 pages. Uh, and so from this book came five articles. One of them is that one that you mentioned and others are in uh, Journal of Economic Behavior and other things. But um, you know, once you invest in that phenomenon of in this case, the joint venture question, um, it's an international business question, but it's also an ownership or uh, a basically a, a, a contractual question, right? Hmm. And uh, you know, I continue to work on both tracks. Uh, I continue to teach and do work on political economy uh, because that actually was my background. I have a background in economic development. Uh, when I came out of Curacao, that was my interest. So I'm always interested in economic development and the impact of uh, multinationals on developing countries. That's the sort of uh, international business part. But then the, the joint venture question uh, uh, became a generic one, uh, regardless of nationality. And that was also the time then, we're talking 1980s, when uh, high tech uh, became very uh, popular. <laughs> what we now see now as uh, the world uh, was beginning to be born then. You know, the, the IBM PC uh, was created in 1981. Uh, so basically the whole world of, uh, of tech that we see today. And of course we know that in the tech world, it's uh, you know, alliances and various forms of collaboration uh, are critical uh, for other reasons, not for the same reasons that going to India or Mexico would have been for the multinational, but it continues to be very important. So uh, I think at some point, I, I remember making this choice. Uh, so what, what's going to be sort of like my, my direction? Uh, and at that point, I started writing a lot about strategic alliances, people call it that. Uh, and I said that that's what I'm going to do. And, and, you know, in a global context, but not per se because of the international crossing borders question. Hmm. So that made me, I suppose, uh, more of a strategy person, uh, which is, uh, I guess, where I continued. So from, from that work uh, at Harvard, I continued to 
teach intellectual political economy, but I moved more and more into the strategy field uh, more generally. Uh, and by 1996 or 10 years later, uh, this book, uh, which really is about sort of how alliances are reshaping uh, business. And at that time, you know, ecosystems was actually just introduced at that time as a word. I didn't use the word ecosystems, but we talked quite a bit in this book about constellations, about multiple uh, partner groups. So that's, um, I suppose the rest is history, but that, that you know, I, I, I doubled down on the, um, the type of business that I learned when I came in by studying international business first. Um, and I always thought that when you study international business, you are getting a special angle because uh, you actually see transactions that cross borders. You see them. You don't see them if there is a, trans a subsidiary in Ohio with a subsidiary in Boston. You, you would not be able to measure what's going on there. You don't. There's not being reported anywhere. Whereas once you go across borders, it's a separate entity. It gets reported. The trade flows get reported. So international business, in a way, um, uh, allows you to decompose uh, a, a corporate structure in a way that a purely domestic kind of business doesn't allow. Uh, so I think it, it gives you that special insight into some of the margins, if you will, of the business. Uh, you know, and finally, you know, today there is no international versus domestic. I mean, it's all global. So when I moved to International Business School, that's what we're called at Brandeis, the International Business School, uh, we have very few courses that are international. Everything is global. We, we, are, we are cosmopolitan at heart, and we are basically global in everything we do. Our students are, you know, vast majority international, um, but they are not here necessarily to study how a multinational operates. They're here, they're foreign, so they're international students studying business, which is a little bit different from studying international business. And the way I got into it, and maybe you too, we come from international background. So it's a natural entry into the world of business to study the international component because we know our countries. Uh, but after a while, you see that this is part of a larger phenomenon, which is uh, independent sometimes of borders. Uh, and, and so I ended up becoming, I guess, more of a, a general uh, strategy person uh, focusing on alliances in particular. Thank you. Ben, if you stop doing what you're doing today, uh, what's the second best career path for you? How would you do? <clears throat> well, it's too late to make any major career path change. <laughs> uh, I would say, uh, I, I told you astronomy was already out, um, but uh, I would say uh, perhaps uh, architecture. Uh, I'm, I'm, I, think, I think the question of design the question of design for fit. Some of the most inspiring books I read during my doctoral work uh, were about architecture, were about how architects think about a problem uh, and find a way to fit it uh, with a, uh, you know, artificial structure, man-made structures, which is what corporations are. So there's nothing natural in a corporation or in a market. They're man-made structures and they're man-made structures for certain purposes. And they're in a context that also has certain purposes. The political economy we are in is also not a natural thing; it's it's man-made. Uh, uh, so yeah, it, it's actually fascinating to see how your brain is working. Uh, you see these, um, you see you, you're making very interesting connections between uh, entities, and you're establishing such exactly structure. Um, this was interesting. Um, regrets? Have you got any regrets? 
You know, I uh, I always look forward. I, I I believe in you know buying a computer and never looking again at what the price would have been tomorrow for that same computer. You're you know you're you're committed to it. Work to use the best you can. So uh, you know I there's not much that I would look back on and say I would want to do it differently. I'm very lucky. I'm very privileged uh, to have uh, come here to have been able to. Uh, educate uh, myself and 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 you know have such mentors and such powerful places to learn, and you know and books books continue to be the inspiration. So you know you you mentioned my book Remix Strategy. That that's the one I would plug. So if anybody wants to know what I'm about, this is where it is. Except uh, there's also two LinkedIn courses which are even more popular than this, uh, and they're very they're very uh, easy to to grasp. But I went back to my undergraduate study to look back at Joseph Schumpeter and, and how he defined entrepreneurship and, and how for him, the most important thing were combinations, right? Everything was a, combina a recombination. So the word remix comes from the word recombinant, recombinant. So this is a book about recombinant strategy, but my editor said that will never sell if you call it recombinant strategy. So you have to find a better way to think about it. And this is much more modern. Uh, but, you know, so Schumpeter, you know, Edith Penrose, this is the book to go back to. I mean, this is, I just wrote something about how relevant it is today in today's world with Google and Apple and all those people. It's still, you know, totally uh, applicable. You have to expand it uh, a bit to do that. Uh, and of course, you know, transaction costs, this is, you know, this is the Williamson book, but obviously, actually, that's one area where an article really had the big impact, which is Scosa's nature of the firm. Uh, and that article continues to, you know, be powerful. But uh, other than that, I think in, I, I, I like big ideas and I like uh, people who, who, who lay them out in a rich way. So my recommendation to your, uh, to your audience, uh, if they're in the business of uh, getting into this field, is uh, yes, focus on your, your, um, your topic of your thesis and, and you're, you're, you know, probably fairly well-defined, maybe narrow, just like I did, joint venture versus only own. That was my only question, right? Uh, and I, I took somebody else's theory and somebody else's data and I tested it. That's the classic solution for a thesis, uh, but do that. <laughs> On the other hand, think about the big, the big picture in which you are working. Uh, and I worry sometimes that I see academia uh, not just international business, but really all of academia, uh, going into you know so many uh, narrow niches uh, that we lose sight of you know something that Ray Vernon could call sovereignty at bay. I mean that title for a book about multinational enterprise is just awesome. Uh, so think about the big ideas; those are the ones that last. Uh, and, and even and, the yeah. title of that book is beautiful. That's yeah, a it's a, you know, the titles are really important. I've thought a lot about remix strategy. Titles are super important. But uh, it, it, what it does is actually, I have a cartoon up here with a Dilbert cartoon that said, you know, oh, we have the title for the book. We're done now. All the rest <laughs> is filler. <laughs> uh, I had this interview with uh, Christos Pitelis, and uh, uh, Chris mentioned uh, something. That was really also almost an epiphany moment for me. He says, um, to have a 200 page, a 250 page book on one idea, you must have a great clear uh, logic and keep it sustained over, over that many pages in many de detailed uh, arguments. Uh, I mean, yeah, uh, I, I hope the audience will watch uh, Chris's uh, in, uh, interview as well. So let's talk about research a bit. How do you explain your research to laymen who don't read uh, business, 
or who don't read uh, academic work? And how do you explain the importance of your research to them? Well, really, it's all around us. I mean, uh, my, my research is, as I said, on business combinations. So you cannot open the paper today without seeing something around merger or acquisition or alliance uh, or, oh, well, maybe AT&T is getting out of the merger they made, but they're creating a joint venture with Discover. Well, what's that about? And, uh, you know, what, is that any good? Uh, is, that a, is that value creating in some way? Uh, is it, you know, how is it managed? And what are the impacts of those things on society, on people? Uh, and so I, I, I believe in the Schumpeter view here that uh, our uh, version of capitalism is constantly being reformed, uh, you know, creative destruction kind of way, uh, by these combinations, by these new, even if you look at the Apple iPhone, I mean, it was a series of combinations that created the iPhone. Uh, it, it was not, you know, some big uh, genius idea to just go do this. Uh, it was, as you know, you teach entrepreneurship, it was a graduate process of uh, you know, of testing, of growing, of going on the margin. And then before you know it, you have something, you know, you ride that for a while and then you have something else. So even the word of entrepreneurship is all about new combinations. Uh, and so I have no problem, you know, saying that people will get it right away um, in terms of that. Uh, what sometimes is hard is explaining the concepts in simple terms. And, and what I'll tell you here is that uh, so LinkedIn Learning, as you may know, if, you know, if you've seen any of them, but, uh, you know, they, they, they basically have topics and then they'll have uh, experts speak about the topics uh, and their courses. You, you've got a label on your LinkedIn, you know, uh, profile after you take it. Uh, and they, they invited me based on the book to do one on strategic partnerships. And I did that one. Uh, and then they invited me after that to do one on ecosystems and platforms. And I did that. Both of them are super popular. Every morning I get two or three, you know, invites from people who saw it and want to be, you know, a friend. Uh, so, which I like. Uh, so what they told me to do then was to script out, not what we're doing here. They basically, they, they, they fly you to California, they film you with, you know, two or three people, director and all that. Uh, and they wanted to script it out. And the script had to be at eighth grade level, eight, right? <laughs> Now, I thought, oh, no way, because my book, when I ran it through uh, the system, was at 11th grade or 12th grade level. Uh, but it turns out that you can explain all the difficult ideas, even at sixth grade level. Uh, and so, you know, I talk about incomplete contracts. I explain that to people uh, using very simple things. And I use very simple, uh, you know, when I want to talk about joint value, you know, I tell them it's one and one is three, right? And, and this is what sticks. So people will always think about joint value and they see this. Then I tell them, well, how do you govern that combination? It's one and one is one. So it's a very simple thing, right? And it's a, it's, it won't make it into any academic journal. Uh, but if you ask me how to explain this to the you know, smart manager, uh, they want to see that thing. And the last thing in this is, these are the, the sort of the, the triangle in my view, uh, is sharing value. So you need to create value, you need to govern the relationship, and then you have to share the value. That's every combination, that's, that's my prism, right? Every combination depends on that prism. So the sharing value is a bargaining problem, and that's one plus one is 1.4 plus 1.6, or 1.7 <laughs> or 1.3. You get the idea, right? So the, so the point is to you know, boil down the idea, and I can't tell you how much I thought about, about this triangle. So it's, the book is called The Three Laws of Business Combination. So, you know, I, I'll honestly say, you know, I looked at other laws and forces and five forces. And I said, okay, what are the laws that apply to a combination? And it turns out, you know, as you think of it hard and hard, 
it turns out the economics of creating value. That's like super important. If you can't create value by scale or complementarity or something like that, then there's nothing there, right? But even if you can create value, you need to manage it properly, right? That's the issue of governance. So that's the issue of where transaction costs in complete contracts, very important there, uh, and, and management processes come into play. And even after you do that, if you don't properly share the value in a way that everybody is sort of uh, incentivized, uh, then it's going to break. So that uh, triad, those three laws apply to every merger that I see and the big ones and the small ones, whether they succeed or fail, you can find that story in there. Same thing with alliances. So that's where I end up after coming in from Curacao, studying international business, uh, trying to look for the essence of joint ventures, but then ending up with a, a larger picture, I think, at least I feel that way about how combinations work. Ben, what can you say about the understudy? Let, let me ask you, understudied areas, things that we should be doing more in international business or, or strategic management um, for, um, to give advice, for, for instance, uh, to a PhD student who's going to be looking for a great new topic in uh, for his dissertation. Yeah, you know, it's funny because I don't, I don't know that uh, I, I made a choice like that my own, myself, right? I mean, I don't think I stood back and said, what, what's the important topic? I do think you want, to th you want to be conscious of where the world is going, right? You, you, you kind of have to feel about not just where the academic literature is going, because academic literature is three, four, five, ten years behind the world. Right. Mm -hmm. So so first, where the world is going, like understand what the issues are. And then I think understand the, the, the newest tools we have, which is what academic literature does give you, you know, the newest tools, whether it's an economic analysis uh, or organizational analysis or political analysis or sociology or any of those things, you know, understand them and then see if they help you uh, help you tackle a problem, uh, which 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 is in the world, right? I mean, I think, you know, the Harvard way is always step out of the lab, you know, go out, go. When I, when I did that uh, big thesis, I told you, it was all statistics, but Lou Wells told me, go interview some people, which I did. And those are very helpful. And later on, I ended up writing cases, like the case on Fuji Xerox, people know maybe very well as a joint venture case. Uh, that was because I went into the field and tried to understand how the thing really works. Uh, so I do think you need to have that uh, in touch with, uh, sort of the reality of where the world is going and what companies are doing and what uh, business is doing. And, uh, you know, so today's world, I mean, climate change would be one of the huge topics that uh, I think I would be encouraged by having people address that. But uh, in something we do at Brandeis, we call, we have a week with it, we call the business of climate change. What is the business that will drive improvements to the climate situation? So, you know, in asset management, it's ESG investment. Right, uh, but in entrepreneurship, it's you know new technologies. But think about the incumbent power of let's say the fossil fuel economy, the whole fossil fuel business, not just Shell, you know, but the whole the whole fact that we're based on fossil fuels. Where is that going to go? Right? Well, how how are they going to give up power? <laughs> uh, or what is the entry point in which one can begin to uh, make those changes? Because if we don't make that, then twenty years from now, you know, we'll be in deep trouble, uh, if not now already. So I think that's probably the, the, biggest, the biggest issue to look at. Uh, the other issue is that capitalism uh, has created a lot of uh, inequities. It has also created a lot of uh, improvement, uh, but there, you know, it, it has been established and based on 
um, you know, class systems historically and, and racial uh, discrimination historically. And uh, so those power systems, that's a power system that uh, in a way underlies uh, companies and, and capitalism. I think that's an important question to study. Um, and, you know, finally, the geopolitics of the world are shifting rapidly, as you know. Uh, and so what, what does that mean for, in this case, classically for international business? What does that mean for an entrepreneur in an emerging market? Do they have to choose between China and the U.S.? Is that even a thing? Is that where's the supply chain going to go? So there are so many hot, important questions. And I would say grab onto one of those, but then grab onto a tool set. As I said, in my case, it may have been transaction cost and bargaining theory, but that's old, you know, that's well known. So accept it, apply it, move on. Um, and um, maybe that's a, a formula, but I can't say that I did that consciously myself. It's, uh, you know, backward looking. How, what can you say about the evolution of the field in IB then? Well, I think, yeah, I mean, look, it started, I know where you want to start it, but, uh, you know, Ray Vernon, Steve Heimer, you know, Kindleberger, um, and, you know, Buckley Casson, uh, uh, John Dunning, you know, there was a, a number of sort of classic sort of, uh, you know, foundational works in the field that, that, that tried to, and then, of course, on the side of the actual, the one-on-one is one, I'm managing the enterprise, you know, Sumantra Goshal and Chris Bartlett, people like that, you know, worked on that, Eve does, you know, so there's a lot of uh, work that was done both on the, the economics of it, the, you know, mm -hmm. the oligopoly competition part of it, and then on the management of the, of the process and the people, uh, and, 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 and a little bit on the impact. I, I think that was never really uh, fully uh, developed, you know, what, what is the impact of uh, foreign investment on countries? I don't, I don't think we really have a handle on that. But um, over time, uh, these things begin as a, as a big idea. Ray Vernon had all of those ideas in one book, but, but then uh, it becomes specialized, right? And um, yeah, I think that that's why you kind of have to be careful not to go down the rabbit hole and stay there. Uh, go, go back out and look whether, you know, the big issues are being addressed by the areas that we are now focusing on. Uh, and I, I would say, uh, I, I would, I think there's a, sometimes a tendency uh, in, in, uh, in the academic sort of journal world to, to create uh, debates that are um, sometimes a little artificial, you know, because people are, you know, slicing things so thinly to, to kind of make a difference. Uh, so avoid those and stay with the big ideas, stay with the big problems. Uh, and apply the big tools that can help you in those problems. Uh, what was the best advice you received from your advisor? Uh, I didn't go out and study. That's what Blue told me. <laughs> um, yeah, I think, you know, I don't know if it's advice or uh, behavior of the advisor, which is to, to let you run to let you run and then to, um, you know, give you the, the guidance, you know, to, to keep you honest, to keep you rigorous, to keep you, you know, uh, you know, making, making progress. Uh, I think that's the best way to go. I, I, when I work with a PhD student, I really don't like to give them a topic or tell them, come 
do this piece of research and you have a paper. I mean, you could do that, but most important is to look for, for uh, you know, a scholar, is to look inside yourself or to look inside your background. I mean, I, I can tell you that, you know, some of the stuff I studied was basically stuff I learned earlier uh, because I did a master's degree and then I worked for the World Bank and I learned a lot at the World Bank, which I then ended up doing in my uh, doctoral work. So I think go back into what, what you know and what you've experienced and, and that gives you a differentiation and then find ways to, um, you know, make it, uh, make it a, a rigorous scholarly uh, uh, pursuit. What are some of the common mistakes that you see junior faculty or PhD students make? that you would say, don't do it, you know, you would. Yeah, maybe what I just mentioned. I mean, uh, our theory is very uh, confusing. Uh, we, have, we have a lot of words that say the same thing. Uh, we, have, we have, you know, theories that aren't really that much different from each other, claiming they're different from each other, mm -hmm. because that's how you uh, establish yourself in a, in a journal, maybe. I would say, be careful of that. Uh, keep it real. Keep it real. This is this is not about theory. This is there's this. We're not solving, you know, cosmo, cosmological physics problems here. We're we're trying to help understand the world around us and ultimately understand how we work in that world and how we manage that world. So if you start losing the relevance in in name of some sort of rigor then I think that rigor is, is probably misplaced, at least in our field. There isn't that much pure math that you can apply to our field that still makes sense in terms of relevance. Interesting. So don't use relevance. Uh, well, for the sake of time, what is the question that I should have asked you but haven't? You know, I don't know because it depends on who you are and what you are. So, you know, I, uh, there's nothing about me that uh, requires a question. Uh, it's just that whatever is in your mind is the question that you should have asked. So you probably did. Those are the questions you, you generated. And if somebody is watching this and they have a question based on what they learned, it's just like when you do a case discussion, you know, you cannot tell the people in the end what they should have learned because everybody learns based on a different uh, starting point. And they walk away with something a little bit different. So that's the question. It's whatever is still living in your mind. That's what I should have asked. <laughs> thank you so much. Thank that. you so much, Ben. Okay. Uh, thank you for your time. I learned a lot. Well, guys, thank you very much. And, and thank you for doing this. I, I hope that people will watch not necessarily this one, but uh, all the other uh, leading lights that you have on here. And it's a, a good way to build community in our, in our field. Thanks.